Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday after a long Thanksgiving weekend. Medicare Advantage organizations are back in the news. It seems that more and more providers believe their claim denials are egregious and there is no oversight. On the other hand, a recent OIG report reveals widespread problems related to denials of care and payment by Medicare Advantage organizations. We have two reports for you this morning. Dr. R. Phillips Baker reports on his efforts to change behavior by Medicare Advantage plans and healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel examines the OIG report on Medicare Advantage organizations. In other news, CMS announced last week that it might not consider therapy minutes for therapy services provided by student therapists. Angela Phillips is standing by with a report. It's a report that's sending shockwaves for the IRF industry. Also on today's Monitor Monday, healthcare attorney David Glazer answers listeners' questions about risky business. Senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen reports on how a lack of response by an auditor is now causing some very serious problems. And Nancy Beckley returns with the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listeners' survey. But we began this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. I'm sure all of you are getting back to work after the long holiday break, and I suspect more than a few of you are getting back to find those patients who were hospitalized on Thursday or Friday for abdominal pain or chest pain are still in the hospital waiting for their EGD or stress test because those services aren't offered on holiday weekends. Well, Remember that Medicare does not financially reward hospitals for failing to offer services on holidays and weekends. So be careful to check if there was medical necessity if those patients were admitted as inpatients. Now on to more interesting things. Two years ago on this broadcast, I told the story of a patient of mine who went to a skilled nursing facility after a hospital stay and how difficult it was to get him discharged prior to the 20th day which just so happened to be the last day that Medicare pays 100% of the covered charges. Well, last week, in a journal called American Economic Review, an article was published entitled Strategic Patient Discharge. And in this article, the authors analyzed data from every Medicare patient hospitalized in a long-term acute care hospital from 2004 to 2013. And they found that a similar phenomena happens in LTACs. That is, patients seem to be kept in the LTACs to the point of maximal financial benefit for the facility, a day which they deemed the magic day. Now, LTACs are paid similar to hospitals with a DRG-based payment system, um, depending on the diagnosis. Each DRG has an associated average length of stay. But in order to get that full DRG, the patient's length of stay must be at least five-sixths of the average length of stay. If it's less than that, then the patient gets or the hospital gets paid at daily rate. Now, being in an economic journal, this article goes very deep into the mathematical analysis of those discharges, and I had no idea what they were discussing. But as the saying goes, a picture tells a thousand words. So I looked at the pictures, including the one that's displayed right now. 
And that picture is pretty darn incriminating. The spike is right at the magic day. Even more telling is a graph of discharges over time. Here you can see the change from 2002 to 2004 and then to 2013. Clearly a, a, a change to the magic day. Now the authors admit that their analysis is solely based on claims review and not review the medical records to determine the proper length of stay. But it would be hard to imagine that reviewing medical records would show that so many patients just happen to be stable for discharge on the day they hit the magic day. There's a lot of talk about cost of LTAX to the Medicare Trust Fund. CMS adopted the site neutral payments change two years ago, and MedPAC has been pushing for payment changes. This article is certain to raise a few eyebrows in Congress and CMS. Now, if you want a copy of the paper itself, and it's 34 pages full of mathematical equations, well, only Frank Cohen's going to understand it, you can find it on the American Economic Review website for free. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now on the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck. Welcome, everybody, to Monitor Monday post-Thanksgiving. I want to report today on my continuing series on what's happening around the maps with Targeted Probe and Educate. Uh, when I first started the series, one of the topics I talked about was the JL Novitas Targeted Probe and Educate for end-stage renal disease, and the round one results of 106 probes were completed, with 64 passing through, with 17 closed with a moderate air, 17 closed with a major air, and eight probes closed with insufficient sample size. 34 of the moderate and major went to um, targeted probe and educate round two for end-stage renal disease, and the published findings are now out. 34 probes were completed on round two, and so presumably people um, with end-stage renal programs uh, had their education and were able to improve their documentation. The 21 probes were completed with minors, so they passed. Four probes closed with a moderate air and three probes closed with a major ear. So we started with 106. We got down to 34 that went to round two. And out of round two of the 34, seven are moving on to round three. And the reason for the denial in round two that is moving these providers to round three is incomplete or missing treatment records and missing signed physicians signed order for treatment. It almost seems like maybe people weren't looking over their records before they sent them in. That's kind of my editorial on that. But I'm going to continue to keep you posted on what's going around with the MAX. And now we're going to pull up our poll. And in honor of my colleague from Rehab, Angie Phillips, talking about students today and what's going on, I thought I would just do a quick poll. Does your facility accept students for their practicums? And this could include medical students, PT, OT, speech-language pathologist, respiratory therapist, recreational therapist, social workers, any type of student that has a medical practicum. Answer yes for number one or no for number two. Thanks, Chuck. We'll be back a little bit later.
Thank you very much, Nancy. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about uh, eight and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from Frank Cohen, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Angela Phillips, and our special guest, Dr. R. Phillips Baker. This is Monday, it's November the 26th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. New changes to rules regarding compliance and reimbursement for provider-based clinics could impact your organization if you currently operate one or more of these off-campus facilities. You could face serious compliance issues while leaving money on the table if you and your team are not aware of compliance rules regarding provider-based clinics. So, an exclusive Rack Monitor webcast led by author, educator, and consultant to Wayne Abbey, Ph.D., is essential. Learn how to stay within compliance guidelines for all types of provider-based clinics and avoid any compliance recoupments. Know how to plan properly for the development of a provider-based clinic and for the financial impact from the reimbursement changes that are taking place. The webcast comes your way this Wednesday, November 28th. To register, click on the handout tab in today's Monitor Monday. Today, healthcare attorney David Glazer answers listeners' questions. These are questions that could represent a risky business. Here now is David Glazer. Good morning, David. Good morning, Chuck. So first, we often do a webinar about the OIG work plan, but this year we're doing something a bit different. I guess we could call it the Glazer work plan, and it will cover developments in the fee schedule, case law, and things you should be doing to stay out of trouble. The handouts tab has details on this December 18th, How to Avoid Legal Pitfalls broadcast. So we have had so much news to report, we've skipped some questions, so let's do them now. Rita asked, how can you bill an observation patient that stays longer than 72 hours post-surgery? She made mention of the 72-hour rule. Now, first, it can be confusing when we give informal names to rules. To me, the 72-hour rule is the regulation requiring Medicare to bundle diagnostic tests performed by an entity that's either owned or operated by a hospital that are performed in the three days prior to hospital admissions. And I don't think that's the rule to which Rita is referring. Uh, But I want to emphasize a key point. You should never, ever, ever have an observation patient who's in the hospital for more than two midnights. Once you're coming upon the second midnight, it's crystal clear that you expect the patient to be in the hospital for two midnights. That expectation renders the patient an inpatient, not an outpatient. Now, I would say that three-day observation stays should be a thing of the past, but the truth is they should never have existed. In the old days, the expectation of an overnight stay was sufficient to justify an inpatient admission. At no point should there ever be a three-day stay that's an outpatient. Now, both Jessica and Laura had questions about how the fee schedule changes affect who can document information in the medical record. Can a medical assistant or nurse collect and document the HPI? Does the history refer to the entire history section, or does it refer just to the past family social history? I want to reemphasize that I don't think the new comments in the fee schedule are actually terribly significant. If anyone can show me an authoritative rule that limits who can document in the medical record, please send it to me. But I'll repeat my core principle. Until quite recently, most physicians dictated. When physicians dictated, no one asserted transcriptionists couldn't record information in the medical record. Anyone can put information in the medical record. 
I recommend the doctor make it clear that he or she reviewed the information, but I don't care who wrote it. Finally, Barbara, a longtime friend, asked about recent changes to the CMS policy about medical students documenting in the medical record. It's true that there is new manual guidance, making it clear that students can document information as long as the teacher verifies the information. But the answer is the same as for the last question. It's important to emphasize this manual language is not binding. It's fine to tell a patient to write his or her problems down in detail. Chuck, basically as Supertramp would say, hoministically, write. You've got the bloody right to say. Back to you. Thanks so very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen reports on how a lack of response by an auditor is causing a major problem with a physician practice. Here now is Frank Cohen. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Chuck. Well, once again, I find myself talking about the problems I encounter with extrapolation audits. Uh, Extrapolation is a complex statistical technique that requires great precision and proper methods in order to be considered as legitimate. The problem is that there are so many things that can go wrong, it's really important we get this right. And it's my experience that auditors rarely do. The good news should be that there's an appeal process, which includes an option to challenge the statistical validity of the sampling and extrapolation methods. Level one of the appeals process goes to the Medicare administrative contractor, who, by the way, is paid by CMS. Level two, reconsideration goes to a qualified independent contractor, who also is funded through the same dollars as the auditor and the MAC. Nothing independent here. Level three is a hearing before an administrative law judge, and in their latest report to Congress, CMS footnotes this by saying that the ALJ is independent of CMS. And maybe that's why we never see extrapolation reversals occur at level one, less than 2% at level two, and the remaining reversals all at the ALJ level. Is it any wonder why there is such a backlog? It's because the first two levels are nothing more than a rubber stamp for the auditor's findings and, in my opinion, a complete waste of everyone's time and money. In most of my statistical challenges, there is no response at level one. At level two, most recently from, um, um, from one of the quicks, I won't give their name right now, but the provider receives a form letter of sorts that commits three pages to nothing more than reiterating the program integrity manual. But what we don't see is anything that addresses our specific challenges. Why not? Well, because they don't even bother to read my report. How do I know this? Recently, I was working with a client on a post-audit extrapolation engagement, but I couldn't even do the analysis because they failed to provide the requisite information, such as the universe, the sampling frame, even the sample information. So we just sent along a notice of failure to produce, and guess what we got back? That same form letter, just as if we had submitted a report challenging the extrapolation. Why? Well, because they don't even bother to read or consider challenges to the extrapolation. Yet, they can appear as a party at the ALJ hearing to testify in defense of the extrapolation, even though they don't bother to provide a response at the reconsideration level. What a joke. So right now, we're facing this crisis in healthcare that has been created and is supported by CMS. Rather than continuing to throw money and new judges, 
to deal with the backlog at the ALJ level? Why not just fix the problem in the front end? Maybe if we were to truly hire qualified and truly independent reviewers at the first two levels and force them to do their jobs, there wouldn't be such a rush to the ALJ level, which for providers is usually the first time that a truly independent arbitrator will hear their objections. I have never been surprised at the inefficiencies and incompetencies that come out of the federal government. But for some reason, I thought that when the changing, with the changing of the guard at CMS, things would be different. And man, was I wrong. And, and Chuck, <laughs> that's the world according to Frank. Thanks, Frank, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. Frank is the Director of Business Intelligence and Analytics for Doctors Management. And you can read his reporting on this very subject in Thursday's Rack Monitor E-News. CMS announced last week that it might not consider therapy minutes for therapy services provided by student therapists. Angela Phillips has that report. It's a report that's sending a shockwave to the IRF industry. Good morning, Angie. Good morning, and thanks, Chuck, for having me on this morning. Good morning to our listeners. And I hate to say that in this season for gratitude, this report has nothing to be thankful for. Uh, while we expected the November 15th Medicare Learning Network call for uh, coverage of the fiscal year 2019 final rule to be pretty plain vanilla informational, the answer to a question from the audience has caused quite a stir, and the email and listservs are buzzing. <clears throat> During the question and answer portion of that call, CMS reportedly responded to a listener's question related to counting minutes of therapy provided by therapy students with guidance that these minutes would not count regardless of the level of supervision of the instructor being in the room. To our knowledge, this is the first clarification CMS has given related to the use of students in the inpatient rehabilitation facility setting, and there has been a lot of discussion throughout the industry following that response. Here's what we know about the issue. Medicare has clearly defined who are the qualified personnel uh, to provide therapy services in the Code of Federal Regulations as being therapists and assistants with specific qualifications that are listed in the regulations. This is not news. There has been very little clarification, however, around the use of students or interns in the inpatient hospital environment, including ERFs, and most of the language related to the use of students in therapy settings has truly been centered around billing for services in the outpatient Part B arena. And here the language has been very prescriptive to not allow billing, but has also been very clear about what an instructor can be doing in the room with the student to allow for some billing. There's some guidance in Section 230 of Chapter 15 of the Medicare Benefit Policy Manual related to students. Paragraph B, Part 1 of that section, discusses billing and reimbursement, again, outpatient Part E services. Part 3 of that section, however, addresses services provided under Part A and Part B and notes that the payment methodologies for Part A and B therapy students rendered by a student are different. It goes on to discuss Part A services and therapy minutes under the SNF PPS. While the manual does not specifically reference ERF services, it addresses the use of minutes in a Part A setting where minutes of therapy are tied to the burden of care, much the same as we provide in ERF. Again, no specific language related to ERF. There's two components to this issue. One is counting minutes toward the intensity of service requirements for ERFs, and the second is student training situations. We know the professional associations, APTA, AOTA, and ASHA, have requested a meeting with CMS to discuss this 
this. And we expect both the transcripts and some Q&A summaries and clarifications in the near future. In the meantime, and since CMS's response was very clear about student meeting minutes not counting uh, during the call, our conservative advice to ERFs is better safe than sorry. ERFs would be wise to assure that the intensity of therapy requirements are met by therapists and assistants pending further clarification. We haven't heard the full story yet, and as more information becomes available, we'll certainly keep you informed. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Angie, very much. That was Angela Phillips. Angie is one of the nation's foremost authorities on inpatient rehabilitation facility services. Medicare Advantage organizations are back in the news. It seems that more and more providers believe their claims are egregious and that there is no oversight. We have two reports this morning. Dr. R. Phillips Baker reports on his efforts to change behavior by Medicare Advantage plans. And healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel examines the OIG report on Medicare Advantage organizations. Here now is Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Hello, everybody. A report that was just released by the Office of Inspector General of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services shows that most coverage denials from insurers and plans in the Medicare Advantage program were flat out wrong. In reviewing hundreds of contracts, the HHS OIG discovered that the plans overturned 75% of their own denials during 2014 to 16, overturning approximately 216,000 denials each year. The total percentage is even greater because of further reversals by impartial commentators and also because the analysis did not encompass many agreements with in-network providers. The chief sufferers are the providers. The study found that 82% of the wrongful denials arose from appeals by providers for payment for services already rendered. While that's not surprising in a third-party payer system, what is surprising is the failure of Insurer Trade Association, America's health insurance plans, to treat it as a significant issue. A central concern about the capitated payment model used in Medicare Advantage is the potential incentive for insurers to inappropriately deny access to services and payment in an attempt to increase their profits. Under the capitated payment model, beneficiaries enroll in a managed care plan and Medicare pays the insurer a risk-adjusted payment each month for as long as the beneficiary is enrolled. In exchange for the monthly payment, the Medicare Advantage organization agrees to authorize and pay for all Medicare medically necessary care for the beneficiary that falls within Medicare's benefits package. Since these plans are reversing more than 75% of their own denials, why don't they just pay more claims up front? The answer is obvious. Even with a high reversal rate, health insurers profit from excessive denials. The report reveals at least two reasons why. Number one, most wrongful denials are not appealed. Only 1% of denials were appealed during the three years in the HHS OIG study. The rate is low because the process is so cumbersome and it's confusing. And for providers who deal with thousands or millions of claims a year, this can be prohibitively expensive. Number two, 
The second reason why these plans profit from excessive denials is specific to the Medicare Advantage program's capitated payment model. Since Medicare Advantage insurers are paid a fixed sum no matter how much they spend, OIG found that they have an incentive to deny pre-authorization of services for beneficiaries and payments to providers in order to increase profits. This epidemic of wrongfully denied claims drags down the entire healthcare system. As OIG notes, quote, because Medicare Advantage covers so many beneficiaries, more than 20 million in 2018, even low rates of inappropriately denied services or payment can create significant problems for many Medicare beneficiaries and their providers, end quote. The numbers are huge. In 2016 alone, 448 million requests had been denied. I'm running out of time. I have so much more to say about this amazing and horrible situation that we have with Medicare Advantage. But for now, back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group, and you can read her report on this subject in Thursday's Rack Monitor News. Our second report on Medicare Advantage organizations is by Dr. R. Phillips Baker. And the good news here is that Dr. Baker appears to be making some progress in changing the behavior by Medicare Advantage plans. Here now is Dr. Baker. Good morning. As some of you may remember from the first time I was on Monitor Monday, I have been working to give our facilities the opportunity to get CMS involved in reining in some of the egregious practices of the Medicare Advantage payers. I started working with the South Carolina Hospital Association three years ago and was able to get contacts through the Atlanta Regional Office of CMS to listen to complaints about Medicare Advantage plans and to begin to intervene. I previously discussed that on this show, and the process led to individuals at CMS tasked with the responsibility to accept complaints and follow up with the MA plans. Subsequent to those efforts, over the last 18 months, I've been communicating with senior analysts in the CMS Medicare Advantage Group. It was interesting in these discussions that CMS actually felt that our facilities had the upper hand in dealing with denials from the MA plans. Uh, These discussions led to CMS putting in writing via emails that if a facility is not contracted with the MA plan, the plan has to follow all original Medicare guidelines for claims processing and payment, Um, and they have to follow uh, original guidelines and policies. That means the plan must follow the two-midnight rule. They cannot do 30-day readmission denials and have to meet all requirements for timely claims processing. CMS is willing to intervene to address these policies if the MA plan refuses to follow their directions for all non-contracted facilities. CMS also made it clear that they will allow you to sign away any and all rights in a contract and that they will not intervene once a contract has been signed. I think that every facility should take this information under advisement when dealing with with, and whether or not to contract with an MA plan. Certainly on a line of business with minimal profit margin that requires much more to quote a senior vice president from UnitedHealthcare, CRAP, or claims requiring additional processing, uh, and frequently has as high as 16 times more claims denied, it is vital to make sure that the C-suite and Revenue Cycle team members understand what it takes to get paid by these plans. And perhaps your facility may actually do better without a contract, or at least require that the terms of the contract be amended to eliminate some of these practices. I continue to work with CMS Medicare Advantage Group in, in order to attempt to get them to consider modifying current regulations to adopt one set of rules for all payers. 
What I presented to them was the unrealistic expectation that a provider at the bedside be expected to have any understanding of multiple different policies by different payers, and then making one set of rules would, for all would significantly reduce the administrative burden on providers and payers alike and would reduce health care costs without any negative impact on beneficiaries. Those talks are ongoing, but I don't expect that to happen quickly as it would take a change in policy, and I do not expect the incoming Congress to see this as a priority in the near future. Our facility has chosen to go without contracts with most MA plans as we see no advantage to contracting. Once I was able to get United Healthcare's PPI division to talk with CMS representative, it resulted in their stopping all denials for inpatient status as long as we meet the two midnight requirements. For the last six months, we've had zero denials from United Healthcare for status. You need to be aware of what is in the contract as to things like how a plan defines an inpatient, uh, what it takes to get paid for observation if you agree to observation services after a patient has been discharged. Is it addressed in the contract? Does the, pay, the plan pay you or do they just pay you Part B rebuild, uh, which a lot of facilities are getting now? and you find out that you agree to accept observation later, you're only getting a few hundred dollars instead of what you thought you were getting paid for observation care. Uh, so you need to know how the contract addresses all those. And I think the bottom line is, do you really want to, uh, to have a contract or not? I think you really need to look at this critically uh, and that you need to continue to, com to report to CMS issues that you're having with EMA plans uh, to make sure that the CMS continues to be aware of the problems that we're having. Well, thank you for the opportunity to discuss uh, and spread the word on dealing with these CMA plans. And back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. R. Phillips Baker. Dr. Baker is the Medical Director of Case Management at Self Regional Healthcare in Greenwood, North Carolina. And Dr. Baker is a member of the Board of Directors for the American College of Physician Advisors. Now's the time for our Monitor Money Listener Survey. Once again, here's Nancy Beckley. All righty, Chuck. This is a great poll today, and we'd like our listeners to keep us posted on what they're thinking at their facility with respect to uh, students, PTOT, and speech, and not only the acute hospital, but in IRFs. 93% of our listeners this morning say they accept medical students and all other types of students on their clinicals. 6% of our listeners say they do not. So, Chuck, we're going to continue, as Angie said, to keep you posted on this critical story about CMS and students. Thanks, Nancy, very much for an excellent poll, and thank you for participating in the poll. We had a number of questions and comments that came in today. We're not going to have time to answer those. We're going to make every effort to answer those this week. So thanks for being with us. It's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday. And a special thanks to our outstanding panelists this morning, Nancy Beckley, whom you just heard, Frank Cohen, Nicole Emanuel, Dr. Ronald Hurst, David Glazer, Angela Phillips, and our special guest this morning, Dr. R. Phillips Baker. We thank you for starting off your week with us this morning. I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rec Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.